Hi, how would you like to advertise on Conversations with Dwyer? You can advertise your band, a new album, your company, a service you provide, or just yourself, and it will be heard around the world, and it will live on that episode or multiple episodes forever. Email me at Conversations with Dwyer, and we could begin discussing how to get your advertisement up on an episode or multiple episodes of Conversations with Dwyer. Again, email me at Conversations with Dwyer at gmail.com. And remember, that ad will be heard around the world. Now, how about we enjoy this latest episode of Conversations with Dwyer? Conversations with Matt Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. This is a music podcast. And speaking of music, that song that played me in is Cranium. It is by Slothrust. And it is from their album Parallel Timeline, which will be out September 10th on Danger Bird Records. And you can go to the show notes and you could pre-order that digitally and or on vinyl or both. Why don't you be cool and buy both? Uh, speaking of which, my guest today is Leah Wellbaum who is the singer-songwriter of Sloth Rust, and it's a goddamn honor to have her on the show. I've been a great admirer of her work for a long time, so it was, and this is a great conversation. We had a really fun, cool chat. Um, also, just a couple other things about the record. I, I, if I didn't mention it, it's, uh, oh yeah, I, I did mention the name of the record, but also the two singles they have out right now, Stranger Astrology and Cranium, you could purchase those as well, and they have great videos for them. Uh, so check out those videos. Lee and I had a great talk. Um, if you want to become a Patreon subscriber, you could hear the conversation in its entirety. Uh, and we talked about Moana and <laughs> Frozen <laughs> and some other things that did not make the free edit. So if you become a Patreon subscriber, you can hear the conversation in its entirety. And you could, instead of listening to it, you could just look at us. You could watch the video, not just look at us, uh, just sit there which maybe that's a, something I should start offering. You could just live stream me sitting in a chair, not doing anything exciting. It could be sort of this performance art thing. Anyway, you could watch the video of Leah and I talking, which sometimes is helpful because there's a comment she makes and she holds something up. You don't really get what it is unless you see it. So this might be something to consider. Uh, either way, if you like Leah Wellbaum, you like Slothrust, you probably would like a lot of my other episodes. I've had a lot of great guests on. I'm going to clear my throat now. <clears throat> Thank you. It's been allergy season, and so I've been like struggling with uh, trying not to sniffle or clear my throat during <laughs> intros and interviews, and it's not easy. Um, anyway, if you like Slothrust, check out my library. A good way to check out past... Uh, um, Episodes is to go to my Instagram. All this stuff is in the show notes. Instagram, or you could just go to themattdwire.com. Instagram shows you who's been on the past, like King Kong, Harmar Superstar, Danita Sparks from L7, Wing Coin from the Flaming Lips. And I have candid, sort of easygoing conversations with these people. It's not your usual rifling of questions and like a nervous, uh, so uh, I was recording and uh, what did you learn? Uh, it's a whole different bag I try to do here on the old conversations uh, with Dwyer. Anyway, uh, also, if you can't become a Patreon subscriber, you could just tell your friends. You could be like, hey, I heard this really cool podcast. That would really help. And if you want, subscribe. But don't. 
uh, who am I to tell you what to do? Um, I think that's it. Lee Wobbaum, Slothra, September 10th, Danger Bird Records. Pre-order it, mark it in your calendar. I personally like to know when a record's coming way early because uh, gives me a gives me something to look forward to in a weird time we live in. <laughs> it's like it, and plus music like like run records records are released. It's like Christmas if it's a band. I like I've been seriously excited for this release for a long time as I was with all their releases. But uh, I get, like, it's something to look forward to. And you're like, September 10th, that record's coming, and it's by Slothrust, and I'm going to listen to the shit out of that thing. And uh, I got to a digital advance copy for the record, and it's really great, and Leah's lyrics are incredible. They're always great. They've always been great. But they're specifically great on this album. You know, people grow, do things differently. I don't know what I'm talking about. I do the same thing every day. Anyway, I'm going to stop babbling at you. Uh, I'm just really excited to have Leah on the show and that this album is coming out and that you should buy it September 10th. And all that is in the show notes. Okay. Enjoy my conversation with Leah Walbaum from Slothrust. Thank you. I don't want to be some chalk upon your board. I'm giving myself goosebumps on my body. I've been a long-time jazz fan, so anytime somebody, like, gives jazz focus, I'm always excited, you know, because people still think jazz is nerdy dork music. <laughs> Do they? Well, I have clearly, a, clearly I, not me. <laughs> I, had a, I like it. I had a friend <laughs> call me pretentious because I liked jazz, and I'm like, I don't get why. I, I, don't, I don't know. People, I think, get afraid of music, I think, like if they're stuck in boxes and they're like yeah especially i come from working class chicago world so i think there's also yeah. that, like what do you think you're better than me you like jazz <laughs> <laughs> my god um i mean jazz is is absolutely amazing the people who feel like closed to it i think have like resistance there for reasons that are either their personal shit or because <laughs> they don't understand its cultural and musical significance because like we wouldn't have music wouldn't be what it is today without jazz especially like american music like are you kidding like that's that's one of the only meaningful forms of like music that actually was is truly american and it's in a, in a certain way at least you know i fully agree i i just and i think i used to do like a run a comedy sh show in a record shop in echo park like 15 years ago and i think people would just get intimidated by that sort of like hipster music scene <laughs> and they would like they'd be like oh man like i'm gonna bomb like they would just get real self-conscious and i'm like what is this about like what about like music or a scene you don't understand like why do you get so afraid if that makes yeah. sense yeah absolutely yeah i mean people so classic of the human condition either either like either fear what they what they don't understand or um don't think something exists if they can't see it and there's music in general is something that you know you know you can argue it but like you can't you can't see music is kind of an intangible abstract thing it, at certain layers at least uh 
but there's jazz is amazing. It's like, I'm someone who got into it a bit like later in my life, but it's definitely to me, like if you can really, if you can understand harmonically what's going on in jazz, you can apply that to the, the genres of music that probably people who say they don't like jazz actually, you know, do like, it's also, you know, if you like people who like say they like rock music and then like, don't like, like, don't like the blues. I'm like, get the <laughs> fuck out of here. Like, come on. You can't say that shit. <laughs> yeah. I had some guy like, uh, say something to me on Twitter a while ago being like, I can't listen to a music that I can play the three chords. Like just that condescending bullshit that I fucking hate. And, yeah. And it's always like a, you know, frat kind of guy who, (laughs) but I'm like, what about the emotion and the, all the other things that go along with blues other than the three chords. And I dare you to play a solo like buddy guy, motherfucker. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like if, even if you don't, even if it's not something you're attracted to sonically, like the history is so important, you know? Yeah, and it's you know I think people should understand at least certain aspects of the history of the music that they're interested in, and uh, you know un- understand where it came from and all of that. I think that's that's meaningful for sure. When you got because you got into jazz when you were in college, like that much later, right? Yeah, that's right. I grew up around classical music. Actually, both of my parents and my grandparents and my aunt and uncles have a classical music background. Um, my dad's from Ohio and his parents are from Ohio and they were both in the Cincinnati orchestra and my aunt and my uncle were in the Cleveland orchestra and my dad, uh, works for the Boston symphony orchestra. So it's actually been like a lot of, um, orchestra music and classical music, but jazz is always, has always been like, you know, revered and respected in my house, but I never really looked at it on a playing level until I was in college. And then I was like, wow, like harmony really, uh, there's just like different ways to look at, to look at harmony there that you don't see as discussed in, in contemporary pop music or pop music in general. Who were some of the first artists that, uh, you became attracted to? Um, in jazz, definitely my favorite was Thelonious Monk for sure. Love Thelonious Monk. Um, something that's so amazing about him is like, he's, he's like all spirit and you see it when he plays because when the spirit moves him to play, that's exactly what he does. But when it, when it encourages him to do something else, like stand up in the middle of like a verse and just walk around the room for a while and then sit back down and jump back in when he's feeling it, like that's what he does. And like, you know, most people would be too self-conscious to do that type of thing. Um, but he's, his music feels so real because it just feels very, he feels like a very clean channel for creativity and for music. And I was, it's very, it's imperfect too. He plays like a lot of clusters and he plays stuff that is just like, it's so his, it's so his own sound. And it's, I think because like, he's not, he's not trying to be one thing or another. He just, he is who he is and he's just like running with it and letting it come through. Um, also for it. Or a silver, I liked as well. Have you ever had a moment of that sort of freedom on stage where you just went into something else or not wandered around, but like in that vein? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that sort of experience where you're feeling, where you can kind of lose yourself and feel 
just connected to the sort of like intangible sensory experience that you're having with, with sound and with music is, is definitely what attracted me to doing it and to, to staying with it. And ideally I write songs like that as well. Although it's, you know, some are like that and some are not, but I've, I've always, I've always sort of been able to tap into that. Do do you just often find yourself in the mode where you're creating a song without even thinking about it? Yeah, definitely. Kind of ever since I was a little kid, I've just heard, heard music in my head. I actually like, you know, had a time in, in college where I, I kind of thought I was going, going a little bit crazy because I started to hear big band music in my head when I was trying to fall asleep. And I was like, I kept thinking there was like a radio on somewhere or something, but there, there was not, I was just hearing big band music, but, I, but I couldn't transcribe it or anything like that. I just like heard it. It was like, I was like, I don't know what to do. With this. Like, you know, if a melody comes through or some changes come through a baseline, a drum beat, great. I can play all of those things. I can create all of that. I can at the very least like hum a phone note of it, but the big band, I was like, I have no, I don't, don't even know how to articulate exactly what I'm hearing, but I'm hearing like 1920s big band music. So that's wild. Did, and you don't think it was like somebody, it wasn't like Paul Whitman or one of those oldie guys. It was something, or it was Paul Whiteman. I got his name wrong. I don't think he'll be upset because he's been dead for 50 years. <laughs> <laughs> um, I really don't. I really don't know. Um, I learned about Claire audience uh, a couple of years ago from a friend of mine who teaches a lot about sort of psychic mediumship and in the, in the Claire senses. And I'm not someone who's ever felt like I had, you know, premonitions per se, or, you know, was like seeing spirits actively. But when she told me about Claire audience, I was like, Oh, I have always heard this music, but I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I've never, I've never heard that phrase before or any, or yeah. Heard that. Yeah. Clear audience. It's when you're hearing music that isn't, it's, it's not there like in this realm. So it's sort of debatable if it's coming from somewhere else specific or if it's coming from you somehow. But when you hear something like big band music, it's actually kind of hard to think about that just coming like from me as in like my personality really, because I don't play big band music. I don't think about big band music. I mean, I do now sometimes after that I was like, what? <laughs> but you know, like it, it wasn't a genre that I was like, Oh yeah. Like it, it makes sense. If I'm hearing like melodies and changes, which I do all the time, like, yeah, that's what I do. Of course that makes sense. But big band arrangements and like orchestral arrangements, I mean, at times it would be almost frustrating, especially if I was hearing something more orchestral because I didn't feel like I could recreate it. And often that type of experience would happen for me when I was like on the brink of sleep. So it's sort of in that like slightly psychedelic hallucination-esque zone. And it's it's hard to, like, you know, you have to, at, at that point, if you want to keep it, if you want to hold on to it, you're going to have to get up. You're going to have to make the choice not to go to sleep. <laughs> And to get up and grab your phone or grab a notebook or go to a piano, you know, you can be old school and like notate it if you're, if that's your vibe. But like, for me, what's been such an amazing tool that is available because of where technology is at now is just like the phone notes, like just like the voice memo app on the phone. Like that's my best friend for sure. That's, do you, 
do you feel like that all is in play when you create music? Like that maybe it's coming from this other world for, uh, that wasn't as articulate as I hoped, Leah. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that, I, I, I think that there's like absolutely moments where I feel like the sense of being like a very clear channel for something that isn't necessarily just me, or if it is just me, it's a part of my consciousness that I don't have the ability to access at all times. And it's really special when you can access that part of your consciousness, because like for someone like Thelonious Monk and why I like look up to him so much is like, I think he like spends a lot of time living in that space and being a very clear channel. He also was someone who wasn't super, he actually like, you know, retrospectively, he's someone that people would describe as being on the autism spectrum is my understanding or neurodivergent. And because of that, he, he sort of, there was like sort of a, a, a point in his life where he was kind of in his own little world and existed right here. And, and it made it so he was kind of, you know, this is of course like me making assumptions. Like I'm, I'm not Thelonious Monk and I've never <laughs> spoken with him, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I was sort of able to like tune all these other things out and really, really listen to what wanted to be played and then allow the music to play itself. And that's for me, definitely one of the more profound experiences you can have is when you feel like the music is playing itself through you instead of you having to be such an active participant in creating it. But it's definitely an, it's an ebb and a flow of those of all of that. But like, you know, on on the next record that we'll put out uh, later this year, I'm assuming (laughs) uh, there, there are a couple songs on there that were like full, full channeled songs that like, I didn't even know what they meant at first. I was like, (laughs) like, what's this, you know? But I think that if you're someone who has those impulses, you should always follow them and they won't always make sense but people shouldn't be afraid of not making sense. You should follow things no matter what they, what they are. If you're feeling intrinsically called to something and really follow it through and it's okay to make sense of things after, obviously everyone has their own creative process. But for me, what I've learned is if I want to understand what I mean at all times, it's ultimately going to create a self-censorship because I don't know what I'm, what I mean all the time. Sometimes I'm just like, hearing things or writing things down and I'm like, wow, this, this, this feels so connected, but I don't think I can articulate it at this point. And that's part of why people are drawn to music as a medium in the first place is because it's like, Oh, you, this is a place that you can express something with a combination of melody, harmony, rhythm, lyrics, any combination of those and say something that can't be said with solely one of those components. Was there a process to get to that, to get to that sort of freedom and that clarity? Did you have to find a trust within yourself or? If the... mm, a process to get to that. I actually think that it has become a bit harder to access with, with, with age and with experience and with working in the music industry, as opposed to just being, a child and being a person who like loved music and was attracted to music, but had no idea where it would take them. Now I have a career and in a country that's like, so, you know, so, so capitalist, so capitalist, you know, it's, you have a lot of other things poking into that space. Like, Oh, would this song work for this type of thing? Like, Oh, maybe this other artist would like this. Oh, maybe there's, 
another project I could start with, you know, these, all these other thoughts start to go off because you're in this sort of state of balancing art and commerce. And I didn't have that as much when I was younger because I just, you know, I didn't have to. And now you, it's, it's, it's a tricky balance for sure. So I would say if anything, it's more like I've always had it and now I can articulate it a little bit better and be aware of how advantageous it is, but it doesn't mean that I have access to it at any given moment. But I do think that there are things you can do in your life and work on to try to make yourself more receptive to those things. But I'm, to be honest, I'm still figuring all of that out. Yeah. That's, I never, I don't know if that that's intense. And I, I, to think of career and creativity is such a, uh, challenge at least it's always been for me mm-hmm. uh when you when something comes out of you like a song and you're like does that and it's like that moment where you're like i don't know where this came from is when you put together like the new album or an album in the past does that career stuff start to sort of muddle with your head a bit where you're like oh fuck i don't know if this can go on the new album even if you love it does that make sense mm-hmm it, it can, it can. I think that it can be good to, I think, I think it's hard to like, to, to put all of that stuff in a box and push it to the side. But I think that if you can do that during the creative stages and during your creative process, that can be valuable if what you're trying to create is meaningful art that feels really authentic to you. Uh, and there's a degree of compartmentalization that I think will serve that. But I think that it starts to poke you harder and harder as you age at times because of just like the pressure in <laughs> the world and particularly like, you know, in this country to where we have like a government that doesn't really seem to care about the arts in this way. So it's a balance. It's, it's a balancing act for sure. Yeah. God, America's great, isn't it? i just was messaging with a friend from canada who was saying like that it's the covid surging there again and i was like and that they're they're speculating that the vaccine vaccines at some point won't work and i was just like how many people like i just feel like america hasn't really given a fuck about it that much to begin with like Mm. taking care of people the the people the working people yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, we like to turn, it's like very classic, I feel like American thing to like turn, turn a blind eye and sort of out of sight, out of mind things that don't feel like they connect to you immediately. But hopefully, hopefully that can continue to change because not everyone's like that. And I think we're seeing that more and more and hopefully people can really start to you know, lead with, lead with love and set the ego aside because we all have so many hangups because of our ego and that it makes sense. That's just part of the human experience. But if people can check that a little more and, and think, you know, make things less about them, take things less personally. Yeah. I think that will ultimately serve the universe best. Do you, do you, struggle have you struggled with ego at all in getting in the way of creativity or career oh sure i think everyone struggles with ego oh my god yeah i would be amiss if i said oh no i'm i'm devoid of ego like no one is devoid of ego absolutely not so yeah that's that's presence 
ego is present in, in all areas in your life. And that's normal. Part of that is a survivalist instinct in our way of identifying ourselves and trying to figure out who we are, who we want to be. And you have to work actively to see when something is your ego (laughs) and, and where that's, where that's, you know, impacting, impacting something in a negative way. You know, sometimes it's fine. And sometimes it's, sometimes it's really getting you, getting you twisted up when actually just be like, wait a minute, this doesn't have to do with me. Why am I taking this? Why am I making this so personal? Like, let's, let's not, let's not do that. Let's, let's, let's take a few steps back and and realize how small we are. Yeah. It's, it's a hard thing. I don't, I don't know. I had so many, my ego fucked me pretty hard. So I was like totally side railed my life at one point. So I was like, really, I think, yeah. And just not being a grounded individual. So having to find my way back to like, um, uh, being a humble and just trying to be present and not get caught up in the, the wheel of like neuroses that feeds everything. Totally. Totally. I feel you. Yeah. I just, I had a point where like career things were really going like, it was just like, holy fuck, everything's going to happen for me. And then it all side railed. And I realized like, if I don't find something else to, uh, to put my worth in or, I'll implode. <laughs> it's like, mm. like I was near like a nervous breakdown and it's because I put every invested everything into career, which is just not healthy, but that's what our society sort of builds for us or tells us we should be. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's such a classic thing that I think about a lot, which is what happens to you when you start to define your self-worth and your identity based off of the same thing that you also make money doing. It's really such a slippery slope. It sounds like you learned this as well as someone who works in entertainment. And it's, it's just so true. It's so true. And honestly, like my parents always kind of warned me of that. They were like, yeah, they did. Even though they are musicians and work in music, they, they always said, you know, if this is your livelihood, what it means to you will change. It won't just be joy the way that it is now. And I was sort of like, well, whatever, like I got to do what I got to do. And I still feel that way. I got to do what I got to do. But also I completely understand what they were saying because you start to define your self-worth off of this thing. And then it's especially right now where everything can be measured so easily. You know, when I was growing up, the, the, the internet was, in development really. And then the thing that sort of popped off socially when I was a teenager was MySpace. Uh, and I, I, I was that, on that. <laughs> that was, I mean, MySpace was fun. I grew up in Boston and Boston had a super alive, uh, music scene. So much fun. I feel so grateful for my experience growing up there. Cause I got to see so much live music and there was such an alive, like underground scene going on there. Uh, and my space kind of was like that sort of the energetic it was serving at that time was like, it was people who were really into music and really into performance and really into like seeing how they could push things in, in, in performance and in music. Uh, so that was fun at the time, but it's like, there's metrics on everything now in a way that is very, very different. I, I used to go to the public library and 
check out CDs. I just would go, I would open the thing of CDs they had. And I was like, hmm, what do we have here? And I would check out CDs and I would take them home and I wouldn't know who the artists were necessarily. Of course, like, you know, maybe I recognize something, but that's how I discovered someone like John Fahey. You know who he is? Yeah. Yeah. I was actually going to, I had a, I had a note to talk to you about him. Oh, really? That's so funny. Well, like someone like John Fahey, like I, I didn't know who that person was. I just, I just saw like this man on a CD holding a guitar and I was like, <laughs> this looks nice. I was like, this guy looks like it could be a, you know, a nice thing to listen to in my room later. So that that's how I found that like him. I didn't know who he was or how famous he was, how many records he had anything. And then you really get that sense of like self-discovery and getting to know something without the context of how it sits in the larger world. And that feels like an experience that's kind of more or less non-existent today because you can see metrics on everything. The second you want to learn more about something, it's like, you know, how many other people are, are listening to it. I do think that's one of the great things about jazz is that I feel like there's always someone I'm discovering that I never heard of, or I vaguely knew. And like, if you just go to, through a record store, you can find something. I mean, I bought Ahmad Jamal randomly. I was like, Oh, I think I've heard this name. And I just okay. bought it. And yeah, uh, I forget which album it was. I know it was recorded live in Chicago. That's why, but it was just like such a, and then it's like, that opens up a whole world of like his albums. And then, you know, any, t- and then you look, obviously, find who else played on it and it just like opens this whole world mm-hmm. to you mm-hmm. so i feel like that can still exist but maybe that's just because i'm old and i look at records <laughs> mm. yeah yeah i see what you mean for sure with john Fahey, because i thought it was interesting because a lot of people i've interviewed lately his name always comes up in a reference to being an influence like steve gunn and i was just i i, I find it interesting when there's like a sort of a trend like that with newer artists and they're all like oh yeah well john fahey was like this and i was like oh it's like it's the third or fourth you're the third or fourth person i've interviewed or about to interview who that's a kind of a key moment wow that's so interesting i wonder if that says more about you than it does about like the zeitgeist (laughs) you know what i mean because like i mean i you know it makes sense that he would be a massive influence to so many people but for you to be doing that many interviews with people who are like john fahey like that's still an artist that like a lot of people don't know who he is even though he's obviously hugely like you know influential people know him so i wonder if that's actually saying something a little bit about who you're interested in speaking with oh that's and those and those people perhaps having something in common energetically that says like yes to john fahey you know yeah well i know shannon lay played with steve did a uh a blaze foley cover with uh steve gunn and so i think maybe there that there's definitely that sort of connection but it's mm-hmm. uh, yeah i don't know i never thought about it being me <laughs> I you're the common to, denominator yeah you're the common denominator try not to think about me <laughs> which is which is funny because that connects to like sort of something in spiritualism that is hard for people to get around because of the ego in part although it's it's funny it all really connects but like this idea of like if there's a pattern in your life that you're identifying where you're like why does this keep happening to me and you're looking at the external factors and being like well it happened because of this person it happened because of this place it happened because of this circumstance the reality is if there's a pattern that keeps happening to you like you are the common denominator 
it's you. You don't want it to be you. You want to blame something else, of course, but like it's usually, it's usually you somehow. And that can be, that can be hard to work with, but. Yeah. I mean, I used to do that with, uh, in my life where like mostly relationships where I was like, well, at one point I had so many bad relationships. I had to be like, okay, this is me. <laughs> this yeah, is the, and totally. So I totally didn't date anyone for a long time until I got my shit to, cause that's, cause I was like, I, I'll just, be a spiraling idiot if I don't take fix this. And I think mm-hmm. those are that's awesome. Oh, so I was going to make a bad joke. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say You're those. Are, Buddhist joke? <laughs> <laughs> those are Buddhist Buddha's words. Don't be a spiraling uh-huh. idiot. Uh huh. Yes. <laughs> well, that's cool because you did the thing. You healed the pattern, and that's all anyone can do for themselves is be like, "Oh, I see the pattern. I take responsibility for my role in the pattern." And I'm going to think about what steps need to be taken to change it. So it no longer is a pattern for me. And it sounds like you did exactly that. Uh, do you have like a spiritual path that you, cause I know uh, this is, I know you play guitar at this yoga thing and that yoga thing. Oh yeah. Yes. I've always wanted to go because I know you just sort of improvise. Correct. Yes. Yes. And, uh, but I don't think anyone needs to see me in yoga gear, but, <laughs> but like, I think we all need to see you in yoga gear. I think you should, I think you should go right now put it on and come back. I used to have to those, the hostage room. <laughs> I used to have those, uh, Bikram shorts cause I used to do Bikram. Uh, uh, wow. Amazing. Bikram yoga is, I've actually never done it before. I've learned about it though. And it's really interesting. Yeah. I it. did it like five times a week. And then I noticed, started noticing my, um, towels started smelling like pneumonia and i was like this is fucked up like something was like because i don't know like if i was just i don't know why but like it was really pungent and awful and i was like do i smell like this like in the target <laughs> like, wow it was really That's really interesting i i do wonder what that what that was yeah and that at was... the time i was being like everything i was consuming was very healthy so it couldn't be it wasn't like in and out and jägermeister trying to get out of me yeah the the deeper stuff i guess (laughs) but but that it was is that sort of like uh playing a guitar in that sort of setting is that a a, a spiritual thing is that also something i was thinking that you do for yourself to sort of keep yourself clear so to speak Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so uh improvisation has always been super important to me and as i did sort of learn more about jazz, I sort of had a little bit of more framework to, to look at it and see how it's been used. But one of my favorite classes I've ever taken was a chamber improv class. I didn't uh, know that was a thing. Chamber improv. Yeah. It was taught by this guy named John Yanelli. And, uh, it was, it was really cool because it's, it's linear music. It's not the type of music where you, there's, it's not an AABA type thing. There's no refrain. There's no hook. It's just, be entirely present in this moment and make whatever set, let whatever sounds want to be there, be there. Don't don't do that. You know what I mean? It's like, you just have to, you have to really, you have to really listen to the other players. And something I was so attracted to in that type of setting was the silence. Silence is such an important part of music. And 
it's really, it's really powerful to have that juxtaposition of stuff that's sort of more crowded and active and then also has a lot of space and is more minimal. And it can be really cool to feel into that. Uh, the, the yoga class that I, that I do at, at kinship was an hour and 15 minutes of solo improv. So there's no one to go off of. <laughs> um, I'm taking my cues from myself and also like the yoga teacher and like the energetics in the room and like what I think serves what everyone is doing in any given moment. Um, and I, I really like it because as much as people are listening to me, they're also like having their own experience. Like they came to the class to do yoga is the likelihood they they weren't, they probably didn't come there for the music. I mean, some people do come there for the music or for both, but they're engaging with their body and with their mind and then with the teacher. And then I'm there providing like a soundtrack for the experience. So it's, that feels very freeing to me because I feel very unwatched in a way actually. And I kind of just follow my instincts in that moment and have, I have a particular, a pretty particular pedal board set up that I'll use for it. And I'm just playing, I play electric guitar through my particular pedal rig and kind of let it guide me. And, you know, sometimes have certain, certain things that I return to and certain concepts that I try to lean into, but I, I try to be really open about it and kind of see what wants to come through and it's very low pressure. So I just let it come through. I'm actually like, you know, slowly, but surely working on doing an album of it because it is of course distilled to that setting, which is what it is. And I will take phone notes of it. So I have it so I can sort of hear back like what I did. And if I want to sort of assess like what I thought was charming or not charming about it, because sometimes I'm like, wow, that's, I, everyone could have done without that section. I was definitely like <laughs> wandering and like, you know, wandering in music can be really powerful or it can sound like someone's lost and it can, that can really go either way. There's, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong about that, but I don't necessarily think there's anything inherently like right about it either. So it's just, you kind of have to let it be what it is, but yeah, I'm working on figuring out how I can distill all of this onto an album easier said than done because so much of what makes that experience fluid for me is the fact that there are people there. I I do find that I come alive in front of an audience and it doesn't have to be a big audience and it does not have to be an attentive audience, but I do feel something when there are a group of people in a room. Uh, And so I'm like, okay, how do I record this? Because usually the way you record records is not with the group of people in the room, unless you're doing a live album. So I, you know, I wonder if maybe that is the way that I should approach this, which is, you know, somehow, somehow record this in front of people, but yeah, I, I would love to be able to get into that space by myself more easily. That would be uh, really empowering for sure. Yeah. I was wondering if you could do a residency or something like at a small venue, because I surely would, show up. And I think that's your main objective there is to have me Mm -hmm. show up. (laughs) It is. It is. It can be honestly just the two of us. I will go to Zebulon, just the two of us just (laughs) lock eyes the whole time. Like hour, hour 15, like that's the only set length I will fuck with hour 15. Okay. um, uh, Purely improvised music is uh, like astounding to me. I don't do. Are you familiar with Ken Vandermark? No, he's I saw he rarely, rarely, rarely comes to Los Angeles because he's he's a sort of a a free jazz guy out of Chicago. And he does a lot of 
um, <clears throat> he'll do sh- stuff like that's just. I, when I, last time I saw him here, it's just he came out and improvised with the saxophone, and I'm just like, how the like, what do you build off of? Like, I wouldn't even know where. Like, where do you what? Like, when you would do that, where would you begin? Hmm. Well. <clears throat> Where would I begin? I mean, it depends. I think that for this, for that type of music where it does have to be the the request from the teacher is that it does have to be nice to hear. No feedback. (laughs) Yeah. Like they're not, they're not like, Hey, go wild. You know, they're like, do something that people would want to do yoga to. So that being the case, it's usually helpful to identify a tonal center. What, what key or what note are we going to dance around? And there are two notes that I usually pick for this. And the notes are E, which is the lowest note of the guitar. Um, so that totally makes sense. Or I detune my E to a C and I detune my A to a G. And then I do C then I'm in C, which is many people's favorite key signature. So, (laughs) I'll live in that world and sort of just having that be the grounding thing within the set. If there's no yoga people and it's just like, Hey, let's get weird. Like I might play some really, I'm very available to play stuff. That's like abrasive and kind of like ugly and atonal and very like dissonant and jagged. Like I'm also attracted to that, but that's the type of thing that, is more fun for me to do with another person. And you have to have like the right collaborators for that. And also like, it's not what the yoga people are looking for. It's not what, (laughs) you know, if it sends you deep into a meditation, that's amazing, but it isn't because it just like soothed you there with like a lush ambient bed of whatever, you know? (laughs) So, but that's, what's cool about music is you don't have to, you you can, it, it can do all of that. It can do all of that. Yeah, I was curious if you did it without the yoga people where where that would lead, but you sort of covered that. But that would could you do like a streaming? I don't know why I'm fixated on but like if you did a streaming thing where you just played and recorded and I don't know if that you can feed off of people on a computer screen. Yeah, you know, I I I did that a little bit at one point. I did um a thing for bands in town on Twitch. And it actually made me like really upset because like the Wi the Wi-Fi got messed up. And I was like, and it was like kind of at that point in quarantine that I that that I was getting a little like I think everyone kind of rode waves of optimism and pessimism throughout it. But that one kind of sent me to a dark place, to be honest, because I was like, wow, this is this is what I have. This is how, this is the way I have to reach people. And like the internet doesn't work. And like, I can't do anything about that. That feels out of my control. And I'm trying to like (laughs) be present and like, listen to what's, let it play through me. And then I'm like, well, I can't because seeing all these messages pop up being like, (laughs) your video is frozen. The audio is like distorting, whatever it is. And I'm like, all right. So I haven't, I have not circled back since then, but I actually did play one COVID safe yoga class and it was hilarious because fireworks went off and it was an an outdoor class. It was an outdoor class. Like something had happened with like the Lakers. I don't know what it was, but it was like, it was like a good, it was like 15 minutes, 15 to 20 minutes of just like going in hard on fireworks. Like 
like, sh- like shocking. And it was just like, you know, for that, I think I, I think I stopped playing at a certain point and just was like, you know, we'll just let's, let's embrace the fight. Let's let this be the music for now. I'm not going to, I'm not going to fight. If I can play something that's like copacetic with it. Great. But otherwise like, no, I'm not, I'm, I'm certainly not going to try to be louder than a, than a firework. So what made you, cause you mentioned the Lakers and I was curious cause you went from Boston to New York to LA. What, what appealed to you? Why did you want to get out of New York and what appealed to you about LA? What I want to get in New York. Well, for starters, I feel like the thing that drew me to New York was, was, uh, the option, the, the performance opportunities. New York is, such a special city. It is to my understanding, the only city in the country where you can play at clubs, multiple, like multiple nights a week and play original music. There's obviously like, you know, places like new Orleans and Nashville. Like there's a ton of live music every night. You can play music every night there. If you, if you're a good player for sure, but it's like, you know, a lot of covers and you have to be like a cut player. So if you just want to play original music, um, it can be hard to get bookings regular, like within the same week, like generally people want you to space that out because like, are you really going to bring people to a club if you play a, play a club three nights a week? Well, in New York, because of how many bars there are, like they don't necessarily care that that much. They're like, ah, well you bring 10 people. Great. Because otherwise this bar is going to have two people tonight. So if you just bring, you know, bring some people, you can play. Uh, and that was, that was, that was great. But we got to a level as a band where that no longer made sense for us because we were selling enough tickets where it's, you sort of enter a different tier of the music industry. And it's like, Oh, we want you to do, you know, I think our last play there was music hall of Williamsburg. Maybe I think that's where the last, or maybe it was Brooklyn steel. I don't know, whatever we've done some bigger clubs in New York. And once you start being able to do that, your ticket sales start to matter. It didn't matter when we moved there. We didn't, I didn't have any expectation of people coming out. I would play. I, I remember one time we played this club, the Delancey, which is like not, cool, not very cool. <laughs> six people. Like that was the number of paid tickets was six. Um, and I was like, still a good night. You know, I was like, this was still a really good night. And I liked the six people who came, you know? So, so once you start being able to sell like, you know, a couple hundred tickets, if you want to start, uh, you know, taking advantage of that financially, you have to, to really dial back the amount that you play. And for me, being in New York city was really about being able to play so much and going out to see live music all the time. And I just kind of, you know, the bands kind of grew out of it and we only were able to play New York a couple of times a year if we wanted to have like a really meaningful show in that, in, in that way. And I also was just tired, you know, like I moved there when I was, I moved there right after school. I went to school in New York too, but I moved to Brooklyn when I was 21, uh, maybe 22, something like that. And I had a lot of energy. I would go out all the time, see a lot of music. And then once the band started to tour so actively, I was like, I am tired. I am tired. (laughs) And it is loud and it is loud. And I'm around live music so much. It's my job now. So like, I don't, I'm not as inspired to, to go out the same way and to experience it. And I kind of found myself moving further and further away from sort of like the essence of New York. And I was, by the time I left New York, I was living in Windsor Terrace, which is like practically suburban, you know, very, very quiet. There's like not really clubs over there. It's just, 
It was very super. And I was, I found myself, I was like, Oh, I love it. Cause it's so quiet. I was like, Oh, I'm ready to go. Clearly I don't want to live here anymore. Cause like the, the noise is part of what's so amazing about New York, the stimulation. And I was feeling pretty overstimulated and uh, ready to move on and try another city that I always enjoyed that also has like thriving entertainment and a lot of collaboration. Um, there's a lot of really talented songwriters and producers and performers out here. And that was really exciting to me to sort of have the opportunity to go out and just like meet a new pool of people and see what the energy was like somewhere else. I also bartended for a long time in New York and that was an incredibly meaningful job for me because they allowed me to go on tour and keep my job. I, I, I think that most, most touring musicians will say that like one of the best jobs you can have other than being that touring musician or a supplementary job is working in the service industry because it pays really well. Not always, but it can pay really well. I bartended you, for years and as at a, a dive bar. Cause I know you, I saw you talk about trash. Mm-hmm. I worked, yes. at, I worked at a bar for 10 years in downtown LA, a stone's throw from skid row. So I, dealt with oh some, wow i dealt with some shit <laughs> nice and yeah I'm, so you know <laughs> it it's it kind of did you had did you learn anything because for me it like it definitely taught me a lot of things about how to present myself if i need to like did, oh yeah did it affect your performance at all like because you can weather some pretty fucking rough things when you're bartending I told yeah. dudes twice my size to get the fuck out and they listened and I was like, oh, I thought for sure I was a dead man. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Oh man. I mean, I, I, I loved the bar I worked at. You're right. It was called the trash bar. And part of also what prompted me to leave New York is the trash bar closed, you know? And I was like, huh, do I want to work at another bar? And I was like, no, I don't. <laughs> I don't. For, like I, I did briefly. I, I, I worked at like, you know, sort of a more fine dining bartending type place recently. I did not like that. I did not like that. I was like, my God, it's taking me for, I'm making one cocktail. It's taking me like 10 minutes. I was too slow. I was too slow at it. And I didn't have the manner for it, frankly. No, I um, like telling people to get the fuck out if I have to. Like, I don't get yeah. that polite, like, oh, I'm sorry. Is that not the way? Like when someone would be like, I can't taste the alcohol in here. I'm like, you're full of shit. I pour heavy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The trash bar, like the thing about it that was, it made so much sense to me is it was, it was a rock club. It was like truly a punk rock club. And I actually like the reason that they hired me to work there is not because they were like, we think you'd make an amazing bartender. It's because they were, (laughs) they were like, Oh, you can sell tickets. Like your band is popular enough. Will you book our back room? Will you book some other bands in that room? And I was like, Oh, you so you want me to book here? And I was like, cool. I mean, I'm, I'm down, but can you give me a night behind the bar? Cause like, that's more lucrative. And they were like, yeah, if that's what it means for you to, bo- yeah. So I kind of actually started more like do- working on their back room and then was able to be like, cool. I want to bartend my own shows that, you know, I've booked or whatever. And so they let me do that for a while. And that was really cool. So it was a very multifaceted job there. And it was really like, such DIY vibes, very open-minded, very punk rock. Like it was, it was such a particular time. It was the lease on the bar ended, I think in like a February and I'm pretty sure we kept it open until June. That's exactly what we did. Really? (laughs) So like, yeah. So like PBR won't deliver there anymore. You're going to the grocery (laughs) store buying bottles of Jameson. You're like, all right, selling this tonight. (laughs) Yeah, you and you don't make as much money doing 
Warcraft cocktail. It's like I did that too, and I'm just like I fucking hated it. I'd rather money pop, shit. pop cans and pour shots, and that's how you make. Yes, people tip you a dollar on on a cocktail that took you five times as long to make, and they tip you a dollar on a PBR that you're like. That's what drives me no. nuts. When I was 21, everybody tipped a dollar because I bartended in Chicago when I was 21. And I'm like, this uh-huh. is decades later and we're still fucking tipping a dollar on a drink. Mm-hmm. Time to up it. <laughs> people should just, you know, people should tip more if it's like a really fancy drink, I guess, in theory. But it's like, you know, I didn't even really think about it. I just was like, oh, this world isn't for me. The manner you have to have to do it where you're just like very like, oh, like, you know, whatever. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. <laughs> I'm not, I was like, this isn't, I got to do the sh- book, book the rooms and do the like more rock and roll thing. That was much more my authentically my speed. So, yeah, I couldn't return to bartending. I, I would either kill myself or kill a group of people because I just mm. don't have the patience anymore for any just dickery. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And like the bars out here are like once the trash bar closed and I decided I was going to move out here. My mom was like, so are you going to get a bartending job out there? And I was like, no, no. I mean, I hope I don't have, I hope I don't have to, but also I don't think that I would be the top, <laughs> the top pick. Like, I don't think, I don't, I don't think I would. The bars here close a lot earlier. And part of what was like so successful with the trash bar is that like, it was open until 4am every single night. And so you would get this like crowd that was like there late. Um, you got Dave's in Glendale, though. That's pretty. Uh, have you? Yes, I have been there. <laughs> I have been there. <laughs> yeah, that's a particular place for sure. But it seems I feel like when I was there, I was like, "Oh, the people bartending here have worked here for like twenty years or thirty years." Like, yeah, it yeah. Seemed, that's... It seemed like they were like old school, like life bartenders that who like really can get. And uh, Columbo's in Eagle Rock is pretty wild. Have you ever been in there? You know what? I haven't, but I've, but the person who brought me to the castle, he's, he's like an old school LA, LA guy, my friend Damon. He's really cool. Um, he has been talking about taking us there for a while. So at some point, hopefully that can happen. It's like you, I haven't been in there in a a long time, but it's like when you walk in there during happy hour, it's like you leave LA and you're like in fucking Wisconsin or something. It's like a whole different world. It's pretty great. Like it's like old working class weird like what what i like in a bar <laughs> it's like that i want to be awesome. the youngest guy there are, are they like they're not open right or no probably not if they may i know they do the outside i've driven past there and seen the outside dining hmm. but i know their open mic is on mondays is supposed to be like people like top-notch musicians and jazz folk show up sometimes and i guess really? it's, that's what i heard this is a few years ago like i haven't but like people told me like there'll be studio musicians there and like a lot it's like this pretty cool i don't know if that still happens so don't hold me to it but that's mm-hmm. always been the word and that it's pretty did amazing you, did you ever go to viva cantina in burbank i know but i've always wanted to go have you is that still open um no it is not open i don't think but they would have they had like a bluegrass night and this band would play i believe they were called the brombies and it was like a bunch of studio musicians and they were just i mean m- crazy just like mandolin banjo like oh my god absolutely amazing really really talented studio players who had this like sort of like bluegrass murder ballad style band that would and it was always free it was just like you know once every maybe like once a week or once a month or something 
And uh, I loved going to that. That was really cool. I feel like, you know, since coming out here, when I have gone to shows, the like level of musicianship is like, is like really high. It's a lot of people who you can tell have put a lot of time into their craft, man. That, yeah, that, the banjo player, like he was just no expression, just, (laughs) I was almost like jarred by it. I was like, this dude looks like he's having such a bad time, but I know he's not, but he was like, he was that level of like an effortless player where he was just, (laughs) the number of notes was like ungodly. I was like, shook. (laughs) Yeah. I still, the, Hotel Hollywood or the Holy it's on Western. It used to be a Ramada Inn, but there was a jazz night there. It happened like once. And the guy who ran the bar there was a vibe player and he put together a jazz night. And like, he was like, that guy played with Coltrane and like, he was just pointing and it was all these older and it was just like, and it was me and maybe two other people. And it was like an incredible night. And I was like, why is this not fucking packed? Like why? (laughs) Like this should be jam packed with people. And it was just like me and I, and a bottle of wine. Oh man, that's something I love so much about LA is that I feel like it's a city full of secrets. <laughs> there's, you know, <laughs> there's like always more to be. I mean, you could say that about so many cities, but like for sure, I've really felt that presence here of like, there's just so many weird little things going on all the time that you'll never know about. And then you're just going to, then you're just like blown away by, by whatever it is, even the castle, like, you know, that isn't even in LA proper, but it's just like one of those things that you're like, wow, I can't believe this, that, that, that one, that this exists too, that like not everyone ever like is that there's, that it's not on like the cover of the newspaper or whatever, but I've always thought things were, you know, a bigger deals to than they were. Is there going to be any more animal planet in the future? Oh, it's a a good question. It's a good question. My collaborator on that, uh, Mickey Virchbaugh, she lives in New York. She's on the West, on the East Coast. So it's hard for us to be in the same place. But I would love to think that there could be an Animal Planet record in the future. I'm sure as soon as we're able to be in the same place for long enough, we'll make something happen. Because that's, she is one of my favorite people in the entire world to improvise with and to play with. We have such such a particular dynamic, and I love working with her. So um, I hope in the future we can do that. And then. Yeah, I hope I can get get working on some some instrumental records. That would be fun. I would be. I and if if you'd need me to meet you at Zebulon and stare at you for an hour yes, and fifteen minutes. Yes, lock. I, yeah, whole time. <laughs> we just right here. We got it. <laughs> uh, thank you very much. It was a a real pleasure and honor. All right, thank you. I don't want to be some chalk upon your board. I'm giving myself goosebumps on my body. Thank you very much for listening to Conversations with The Wire. Please become a Patreon subscriber. If you like, also subscribe to the show on your iTunes or what have you not, and tell your friends about the show. That would mean a lot to me. As well as uh, go to the link tree in the show notes or themattdwyer.com or Conversations with The Wire at the Instagram, and you could learn more about the show, buy merch, and all those great things. Thank you very much for listening. I don't want to be some chalk upon your board. I'm giving myself goosebumps on my body.